Well, I think most of us, truth be told, would come just if we get to sing such songs. And uh, what a privilege it is to sing those songs with so many men who believe them. And you can tell when you sing them. I am honored, as you are honored, to be here tonight and to be here for this historic conference. We do feel the weight of history in this. We feel like there is something very much unprecedented about this gathering, and we recognize that it is something to which we will look back and, uh, and, and say, I was there. I was there when Mark Dever read Psalm 119 in its entirety. <laughs> You, you will remember you were there when that happened. Someday you will remember that. You'll remember when you got to stand with the throng of those to declare things you know to be true and to sing them to gl- together and, as Martin Luther said, to hurl them at the devil. Take that hymn, you fiend. And we owe so much to Dr. John MacArthur for bringing us together here. The uh, specialists, yes, the specialists. You beat me to it, but specialists in leadership talk about different kinds of leadership power, and one of those forms is the power to convene. And uh, there's a whole lot of convening going on here. And uh, we are here because we were invited to be here. And we were invited with a sense of urgency that brings us here. And when, uh, when Dr. John MacArthur said he was going to hold a summit on biblical inerrance, and he said, come and speak, we come and speak. And, and you come. People from the north, the south, and the east, and the west, and dwellers from Mesopotamia, you have all come to be here because you don't want to miss this. And, and uh, my responsibility tonight is, is one that every single preacher would envy. And that is on Thursday night at 8 o'clock Pacific time, 11 o'clock Eastern time, to speak about inerrancy and hermeneutics. (laughs) But I am thrilled. Because we are here understanding that every single moment that we're here is precious. Because all the things we're considering are urgent. And we understand that the the question of faithfulness in ministry, not just for this generation, but if the Lord tarries for generations to come, will be impacted by what takes place even in these hours. That's why we don't want to miss it. That's That's why, imagine how many people out there in the world would imagine that we are frankly insane to have gathered together on a Thursday night at this hour to talk about the perfection of Scripture and how rightly to interpret that Scripture. What an honor it is to consider such a thing, much less to get to speak about it. We understand, by the way, that this inerrancy summit, and this is part of the delight, let's just admit it, is going to encourage all the right people and irritate all the right people. (laughs) And the fact that we are here in such numbers is a sign that it isn't over. And we're not giving up without an argument. And the Lord, we are confident, will defend His truth, and He will defend His gospel, and He will defend His word. I am honored to be here with this core of preachers and those who love the Word of God. I'm honored to be here with these speakers. Uh, 
I don't think all of us have ever been together in any one place at one time. And again, that, that speaks to the invitation that came to us, uh, not only from Dr. John MacArthur, but from the Master Seminary and the, uh, the urgency of the issue. We really believe in this. We would interrupt just about anything to show up in just the right place to defend the inerrancy of Scripture because we believe it matters. Matters more than people think. Matters even more than most of the people who sit in your churches yet understand. About a month from now, there will be oral arguments in a case that most of you are aware is coming, in which the issue of same-sex marriage is going to be considered once again by the United States Supreme Court. And In that process, the nine justices of the Supreme Court individually will consider the oral arguments in the case and all the legal briefs and arguments presented in terms of background documentation. And and their task will be to go into their judicial chambers and to interpret the United States Constitution as a text. Much, of course, is going to be writing on that, and we understand that much is writing on that. Those of us who are committed to a biblical understanding of not only marriage and sexuality, but what makes for human flourishing and, 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 and what leads to everything good in a society and for individuals and children. We, we understand what's at stake, and yet we need to understand that what's really going on is a hermeneutical process. What's, what's going on is the interpretation of a text, or at least we could, we could at least believe that's what's going on. We can hope that's what's going on. Actually, the reason why this case is now before the Supreme Court is because of a, of a line of judicial precedence all based in a hermeneutical process and in a matter of interpreting the United States Constitution. And in a very real sense, this case that will be considered in coming weeks and will be decided before the last day of the month of June this year, that case goes all the way back to 1965 in a case known as Griswold versus Connecticut. And in that case, the majority opinion, it was a case about birth control, of all things, and you're wondering, where in the world is this headed? Well, hold on. Because Justice William O. Douglas, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, wrote the majority opinion in that case in 1965, and he invented what we know as a right to privacy. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the words. It's nowhere found as a clause. It's not there. And he had to explain in his majority opinion where he found it in the Constitution. And he said he found it, two very famous words in legal theory. He found it in the penumbras and in the emanations from the U.S. Constitution. And you look at that and say, that's insanity. But my concern tonight is not the United States Supreme Court. It's what you do in the pulpit. And you need to understand that the issue going on in terms of this case is going to make headlines. And already, you know, it's being much talked about in the society. It comes down to two different ways of interpreting a text. There are two different schools of legal theory. And and, and one of them is called the strict constructionist. They're the people who think that words are words. (laughs) They're, They're the people who have confidence in what we commonly call a sentence. 
And, and, and they believe that the, the way you interpret a text is that you take seriously its words and its sentences, its syntax and its grammar, and you understand by the means of that careful attention to the text what the intention of the original author was. And yet there's another school of legal interpretation. This is called critical legal studies. And it it comes up with what it calls the living constitution. And and they say the constitution is not just a matter of words and sentences. Those words and sentences actually are are, are hidebound in in terms of of their temporality. They're they're abstract. They're now out of date. We don't expect to be forced to live by a, a constitution that's over 200 years old in terms of words and sentences. So instead we have a living constitution and we'll find whatever we're looking for in that living constitution to meet the needs of a modern society. And you say, what does that have to do with what you do in the pulpit? Everything. Because you're either going to look at the Bible as the very word of God by which we are bound in terms of words and sentences, or you're going to look at the Bible as what you might just call kind of an ancient document with some continuing significance and the The interpretation of this Bible is to now conform to what we perceive to be the needs of a modern society. You see, the options for the Supreme Court in dealing with the United States Constitution are precisely the the options that we confront when we read the Word of God, and especially for those of us who are preachers, those who are called to teach and preach the Word of God. And again, you can imagine how much is at stake in how the Supreme Court rules, but just imagine how much more is at stake every time you get into the pulpit to preach because eternity is hanging in the balance. My task tonight is to speak of inerrancy and hermeneutics, and I mean to do so in a way I hope is helpful, particularly to pastors. Understanding the challenge that we face and understanding that in the background of this is our common affirmation of the inerrancy of Scripture. And so before we even turn to hermeneutics in the the two sides of this assignment of inerrancy and hermeneutics. Let's just be be very clear about the fact that from the very beginning, an affirmation of biblical inerrancy was understood to be made necessary by a hermeneutical revolution, by a revolution in how the Bible was interpreted and also necessary in order to establish the proper boundaries of the interpretation of God's inerrant word. When we speak of inerrancy and hermeneutics, we speak in the background of an affirmation of the inerrancy of Scripture, of sola scriptura, of the Bible's total perfection, of its trustworthiness and total truthfulness. We mean to say, when we say that the Bible is inerrant, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. B.B. Warfield made that very clear in this book that's been, that's been cited so often on the, on the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And one of the reasons we cite it so often is because we think of it so often. It's because in retrospect, I can tell you that almost every healthy thought I have had about the perfection of Scripture is influenced, at least, and often in terms of how I articulate it. When I I listen to the words coming out of my mouth, I realize, take this in an evangelical sense, I'm channeling B.B. Warfield. (laughs) Because when you look at the way he expressed it, it's hard ever to say it better and more faithfully than he said it. The church doctrine of Scripture comes down to the fact that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That is definitive, it's settled, it is concise, it's the point. 
But again, B.B. Warfield said it's, it's not just the doctrine of inspiration. In that book, he argued it's the church doctrine of inspiration. And, and what he means by that is it's what, it's what the church has always believed about Scripture when it's faithful. It's, it, it, it's, it's the church's understanding of Scripture as the very Word of God. When I affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, I'm affirming plenary verbal inspiration. And, and that understanding of inspiration and of the perfection of Scripture is total truthfulness. It's, it's inerrancy and infallibility. These have been characteristic avowals of God's people through millennia. Even as these truths are revealed and affirmed within the Bible itself. A couple of years ago, I began writing a, in a book project that's already been cited on the inerrancy of Scripture. And I was making this point about Warfield and the church doctrine of inspiration. And, uh, and Ligon Duncan said to me, you need to look at one particular book. It's entitled The Bible Without Illusions. And Ligon, who's written or read just about everything healthy that's come out of Scotland, got me to this book by the Hansen brothers, Anthony Hansen and Richard Hansen. They're identical twin brothers. Double trouble. Both were ordained as ministers in the Church of England. And in their book, The Bible Without Illusion, they actually state and they reject the inerrancy of Scripture. Not only reject it in part, they reject it in whole. They, they don't believe the Bible is basically anything more than ancient Near Eastern literature and uh, artifacts of religious literature from the first century. But they write this, and I'm so indebted to be directed to this quote. I use it again and again. The Hansen brothers wrote, Again, as we have seen, the writers of the New Testament certainly believed in the inerrancy of the Old Testament, which constituted for them the Scriptures. The Christian fathers in the medieval tradition continued this belief, and the Reformation did nothing to weaken it. That's one of the weakest sentences I have ever seen. No one has ever said that Luther did nothing to weaken a truth. On the contrary, since for many Reformed theologians the authority of the Bible took the place which the Pope had held in the medieval scheme of things, the inerrancy of the Bible came to be more firmly maintained and explicitly defined among some Reformed theologians than it had ever been before. Only since, they write, the very end of the 17th century, with the rise of biblical criticism, has this belief in the inerrancy of Scripture been widely challenged among Christians. Only then... That's an amazing admission coming from these two Anglican brothers that, that if you ask what the church has believed about Scripture, the church has believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. If you ask what the divine authors of the New Testament believed about the Old Testament, they believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. If you ask what the Reformers believed about Scripture, they believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, and they did so in order to say it is the Scripture that is inerrant, it is the Scripture that is sufficient, it is sola scriptura. Take that, Bishop of Rome. In its essence, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was a declaration and a definition of the Bible's total trustworthiness and its truthfulness. As the statement said in 1978, being wholly and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. They warned in that statement... To stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total trust, the total truth and trustworthiness of Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. 
As you look at the Chicago statement, you come to understand that the issues they faced then are precisely the issues we face now, only we have added new issues. We have, we've added new questions. There are new challenges that were not even foreseen in 1978. But as I go back and I've spent so much time not only looking at that document, but at the documents behind the document, and, and as several of us have been looking at this, what becomes clear is nothing they confronted in 1978 has gone away. Sometimes it comes back just wearing new clothes. The history of the modern age is the history of a hermeneutical crisis. And let me just remind you, when we talk about hermeneutics, we're, we're talking about the interpretation of the Bible. Actually, hermeneutics refers to the interpretation of a text or even just the act of interpretation. But when we're using it here, we're speaking specifically of the interpretation of the Bible. And as we think about that, we understand that it's over against the backdrop of the fact that in the modern age, there are many people who think proper, rightful interpretation is impossible. There are those who project and and teach even now, they, they, they assert that it's impossible to have any authoritative or even rightful, much less accurate, interpretation of a text. If you go back to the Enlightenment itself, you understand Immanuel Kant's skepticism about the very possibility of divine revelation. And if you don't believe in the possibility of divine revelation, you certainly don't believe in the possibility of an, an adequate hermeneutic of the Scripture. You fast forward to Friedrich Schleiermacher and you come to understand that the very fountain of liberal theology in terms of the, of, of the Protestant world, the, the very fountain of, 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 of the, so much of this German higher criticism that come later goes right back to Schleiermacher and, and his belief that the Scripture could not be inerrant because he didn't believe in the possibility of a verbal revelation. We understand we're living in the midst of a great intellectual crisis. And and one of the things we often mislead ourselves into believing is that it is limited to the intellectual elites. This is an intellectual crisis that takes place on the campus of Ivy League universities. And and you can run into this intellectual crisis if you go to to the, the great European universities. But I want to warn you that this is a great intellectual crisis that affects every middle schooler in your church. It affects what takes place in every pulpit in America. There is no one who is actually untouched by this intellectual crisis, even if they don't have any vocabulary for it. The air they breathe in a modern, secularizing America is an air that is deeply subversive of any understanding of revelation, any understanding of an authoritative text and of the binding authority of that text. You have to recognize that the rise of of what's called higher criticism, of critical approaches to the Bible came because there were people who before they developed the hermeneutical theory had already ceased to believe that the Bible is the written word of God. And and thus they had already begun to redefine the Bible as ancient literature. And uh, and they'd already begun begun to say the Bible has to be studied just like any other book, just like any other artifact of antiquity. It, It has to be taken simply on those terms. And we need to recognize that there's been a great intellectual embarrassment on the part of many, many, not only Bible scholars, but many preachers who are simply embarrassed by the Bible and by the task of having to teach it and to preach it. Harry Emerson Fosdick, in the early decades of the 20th century, that great, very famous liberal pastor there in Manhattan, he he went to deliver the Beecher Lectures on Preaching at Yale University, and his opening statement was that for many preachers, the Bible is now a problem. Well, for Harry Emerson Fosdick, it's certainly a problem. 
But he was indicative of an entire approach that, that has many, many modern adherents, people who aren't quite so honest as was Harry Emerson Fosdick about their rejection of the possibility of divine revelation, the rejection of the Bible as the Word of God written. The novelist John Updike speaks of, in one of his books of the, Reverence Clare, of the Reverend Clarence Arthur Wilmot, the turn of the century, a very polished Manhattan pastor. And in his words, the character in his novel, the Reverend Wilmot, lost his faith. Because as he was reading the Old Testament, he came to believe that the Old Testament was simply an ancient set of writings by those who were wandering in the desert. And he lost all confidence in Scripture. And then he traced it back to his training in the theological studies prior to the beginning of his ministry and his training in the historical critical approach to the Bible where he had been taught these things in seminary, where, as he said, hungry for knowledge and fearless in his youthful sense of God's protection close at hand, he plunged into the chilly Baltic Sea of higher criticism. <laughs> it's a chilly sea, all right. And, and what we're looking at is, is the fact that there are so many who for so long have abandoned the authority of Scripture. And thus we come to understand that there are those in, even in, amongst modern evangelicalism, at least insofar as that ism is still an ism, who also are, are commending new hermeneutical approaches that basically treat the Bible as something other than the Word of God. And, and, and hermeneutical approaches that lack the confidence that God speaks through His living and active Word, through the act of preaching, in terms of words and sentences with binding authority. Well, when we think about inerrancy and hermeneutics, we need to ask the question, does, does inerrancy entail a hermeneutic? If we affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, are we necessarily implying a specific hermeneutic? You know, it's interesting that even as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was followed just a few years later by the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics, many of you know about the Statement on Inerrancy, you don't know about the Statement on Hermeneutics. But the most important statement on hermeneutics doesn't come from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics. It comes from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Because it's that statement that states quite clearly that if the Bible is the Word of God written, and if we believe in plenary verbal inspiration, that every word is inspired and every word is fully inspired, then we are committed to an historical grammatical mode of interpretation of the Interpretation of Scripture from the very beginning. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 we read, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There is so much there to which we will shortly turn. But in terms of the responsibility that the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to make a matter of command to Timothy, we come to understand that this task of rightly dividing the word of truth is an inevitable and inescapable responsibility for every single preacher and teacher of the word of God. And our goal must be, as Paul said to Timothy, his goal must be 
rightly to divide the word of truth. And, and to do so as one who needs not to be ashamed. We do know this. If we affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, we have, uh, we've eliminated a lot of hermeneutical options. To affirm the inerrancy of Scripture means we can't treat the Scripture as any other ancient book. To, to affirm the inerrancy of Scripture means that positively we must understand that, that whatever Scripture says, what, whatever Scripture reveals, is nothing less than the Word of God. But even as we understand that our hermeneutical options are limited, we need to understand that almost all of our theological options are limited. Our Christological options are actually quite limited. Our Trinitarian options are extremely limited. Our soteriological options are very limited. We shouldn't be surprised that our hermeneutical options are very limited. As I pondered how this time might be most helpful tonight, I thought that perhaps I could reduce this question to something that might be, I hope, of practical importance to the preacher. And thus I offer you 12 principles of hermeneutics for inerrantists. You are warned. Keep your pen handy. 12 principles of hermeneutics for inerrantists. I'm going to have to talk fast. You're going to have to listen fast. Number one, simply stated, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That means that we understand as we address the Scripture, and it addresses us, that it is, as Warfield said, an oracular book. It is God's speech to us as God breathed it. As we read, the Holy Spirit moved on men of old in order that they would write. We understand, therefore, that the very first principle of a hermeneutic, a system of of interpreting the Scripture that's based upon the affirmation of inerrancy is that our task is to hear God's voice affirming the authorship, the inspiration that comes from God and God alone. So we take this as our presupposition and we understand that as we're thinking of these hermeneutical options, we are committed by the fact that we know the Scripture to be the very Word of God to what we might call a hermeneutic of submission. Over against what the modern world calls a hermeneutic of suspicion. Now that hermeneutic of suspicion is, is, is that of the modern academy that believes that the text has to prove that it is true. It has to be proved by some kind of external verification. It has to be proved by some kind of, of, of personal affirmation, of, of, of some kind of existential confirmation. And yet... We begin with the understanding that this is a self-attesting revelation that is given to us by God Himself, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are committed then to a hermeneutic of submission. And that means that we understand, as we've already stated, that this affirmation of biblical inerrancy stands upon a foundation of a verbal plenary understanding of the inspiration of Scripture. We can't treat the Bible as merely an historical artifact or an ancient book. We we can't treat the Bible, given a verbal plenary understanding of inspiration, which is what the Bible teaches about itself, as we have been well taught even in this conference, we can't treat the Bible as that which contains the Word of God in the neo-Orthodox approach. We, We can't understand our task to find the Word of God within the words and sentences. No, we understand that this is the Word of God. 
And that is our first principle of biblical hermeneutics. We understand that over against the backdrop of the people who try to cut up the Pentateuch by the documentary hypothesis, we have no such option. We come to understand that those who approach the Word of God as, as, as a text that is supposed to tell us what ancient people once believed, we, we, by the way, affirm that that is true, but it is also what we are now to believe as we are bound by the Word of God. And not only believe, we are to preach it, we are to teach it. Secondly, we understand that the biblical text determines the limits of its own interpretation. And, and, and that's something that needs to be stated just as clearly as I've stated. The biblical text itself establishes the, the boundaries or the limits of its own interpretation. We take the text as it is given to us. This is one of the affirmations of the sufficiency of Scripture. We are given the Scripture exactly as God intended us for us to have this Scripture. We are given poetry and we are given prose. We are given narrative and we are given history. We are we're given different forms of literature, including apocalyptic literature. But the way we have received it is exactly as the Lord had intended for us to have it. And the text, given the way the Lord gave it to us, determines, first of all, the limitations of its own interpretation. We can't interpret it as something other than that which God gave us in the form that we receive it. This means, of course, that that we can't be looking for a meaning that is somewhere behind the text. It means we can't be looking or waiting for a meaning that is somehow after the text. It is a meaning that is found within the text itself as the text determines the limits of its own interpretation. And that means we also, with honesty, approach the text looking for the plain meaning of the text. We're not looking for a hidden hermeneutical key. We're not, uh, we're not trying to figure out the Bible code. We are given a scripture. It is addressed to us as the very word of God written. We are to receive it as it has been given. The third principle is this. Scripture is to be interpreted by scripture, the analogy of faith. We, we are first of all to understand every word, every sentence that is given to us in the canon of Scripture w- within the context of interpreting Scripture by Scripture. This is exactly how we, as we are taught in the Scripture. Because even as you find, the, in, in, for instance, the, the New Testament where you have citations of the Old Testament, you, you, you very clearly have an understanding that Scripture is to be interpreted by Scripture. And this means, of course, that there's no final conflict There's no ultimate contradiction in Scripture whatsoever. This is not something that's been brought to us as some of the folks in the emerging church, and uh, it didn't emerge, by the way. It, uh, It threatened to emerge, but it never emerged. We can be thankful for that. Some of the leaders of the emerging church, someone like Brian McLaren, said that we, we, we should understand the Bible not, not, not as some kind of static constitution, but as he said, as a community library. It's a collection of disparate writings, different writers, different authors, different times, different viewpoints. Uh, a, pl- a pluralism of, of theologies within the Bible is what he suggested. And, and, and it's not authoritative because it can't be because it's in conflict with itself. If we understand the Bible to be the very Word of God, and if we affirm a verbal plenary understanding of inspiration, then there is no ultimate contradiction. If something appears contradictory, it is the problem of our reading, not the problem of divine trustworthiness. When we understand Scripture is to be interpreted by Scripture, we come to understand, as Jesus said, not one jot, not one tittle is going to pass away. And 
We, we come to understand that there is a theme of promise and fulfillment, but as Jesus made very clear, it is not nullification. Fulfillment's a very different thing, and we'll be looking forward to Kevin DeYoung preaching about that tomorrow. Fourth, the biblical text addresses us as words, grammar, syntax, and prop- propositions. In other words, as sentences. It, uh, we shouldn't be embarrassed by the fact that, that we are claiming revealed words, and those words are in a specific order, that order in order to make sense as sentences. Behind this is an affirmation, and, and you, you might think this shouldn't be necessary, but it is that words are actually adequate conveyors of truth. There are, there are those around us, including some who are teaching in some theological institutions, divinity schools, and, and religion departments, and, and elsewhere, who will say that words are simply inadequate as a, as a means of conveying truth. But the Lord who made us in His image is a Lord who has addressed us with words. And we dare not suggest that words are inadequate. Those words take the form of sentences, and those sentences inevitably take the form of propositions. And we're living in an age that denies something that has been denied now for a very long time, and that's the possibility of propositional truth and propositional revelation. Karl Barth, very famously, in the beginning of the 20th century, said that that God's revelation was too grand, too big, and too eventful in order to be reduced to propositions. And in order to make the point, he had to use propositions. Because we are made creatures who actually only understand words put into an order that eventually take the shape of propositions. And Karl Barth was succeeded in some ways by the postmodernists who deny, again, any possibility, not only a propositional revelation, but a propositional truth. And they write books for which they expect royalties, books that contain words and sentences that are formed, if ridiculously, nonetheless into propositions. And, and they intend to use their propositions to prove the impossibility of propositional truth. And what they actually end up showing is that no one can even write nonsense without a proposition. <laughs> Carl Henry famously, in his six-volume work, God, Revelation, and Authority, in which he defended, amongst other things, the propositional character of divine revelation, said, it's always more than propositions, but it's never less than propositions. If, if, if I say to you in propositional language, I love my wife, which I do, it's not enough for me to say I love my wife. If that's not translated into acts of love and a relationship of love and endurance and faithfulness and and joy in one another. But it's still true that the statement, I love my wife, is a proposition. It has a subject, it has a verb, it has a period at the end. And it had better be true. The relationship's not reducible to the proposition, but I can't speak of the relationship without a proposition. God made us in His image and He made us propositional creatures. Thus we understand that our attention by historical grammatical interpretation of the Bible as words and as sentences is not only it's not only explainable, it's not only right, it's necessary. The fifth principle of a hermeneutic for those who affirm the inerrancy of Scripture is that the canon establishes the limits of God's written revelation, and every word within the canon is understood as fully 
inspired and fully needed by the church. So we're not only given words and sentences, we're not only given letters and, and books, we are, we are given a canon of Scripture. We're given 66 books, the Old and New Testament together, and we need all of it till Jesus comes. And thus we come to understand that the, the canon itself also establishes a basic principle of the interpretation of Scripture because it limits where we look. 2 Timothy 3.16, as we have been reminded so many times, tells us that all Scripture is inspired of God. All Scripture. There are those who say, well, you know, that, that was the Apostle Paul. Even if you grant that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the, what we would now call the Old Testament. And that's especially true. I mean, there's, there's no one in their right mind understanding Paul writing to Timothy would mean anything else. But the Apostle Paul actually refers to his own writings as graphe in the sense of Scripture, understanding that the Lord is building up his church by the inspiration of Scripture that we now know as the New Testament. And without going into the history of the canon, and again, I would commend to you Michael Kruger's wonderful book on the canon of Scripture. It, it simply affirms very clearly that, that the canon of Scripture is not an accident. It's not historically arbitrary. It wasn't the church getting together or someone have you to think. If you listen to, uh, to some of the people like Bart Ehrman and, and others who will simply have you to think that the church got together and had a business meeting and then took a vote, which, by the way, was a horrifying idea about what scriptures would be contained. And there are malicious untruths said about the canon as if it, it wasn't finalized until sometime in the, in the third or fourth century when there's every bit of evidence, even in the first century. People knew what the Bible was, and by the second century, they were very clearly giving evidence of understanding exactly what was to be included in scripture and what was not, and they understood the Holy Spirit leading them into that understanding. When I was a seminary student, and this has been mentioned, it was mentioned in the, uh, the Q&A this afternoon, there's something called the Jesus Seminar, and uh, it was a seminar, all right. It was a seminar in which you had uh, some, they were then, I have to say, on the far, far left. I, I don't think it'd be fair to say they would now be on the far, far left. They'd be on the near close left. And uh, because they actually believe, this is, what, this is where they were surpassed, they actually believe that, uh, that historical investigation is possible, which uh, some of their postmodern heirs didn't even believe. And so here's what they did. They formed various committees to look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they said, we're going to take all of the sayings attributed to Jesus, and we're going to vote on whether we think Jesus said that or not. And uh, they really did this, folks. I mean, if you, if you don't know about this, you've got to know about this. They operated by voting with four colored marbles. There was a red marble for, we think Jesus really said this. There was a pink marble for, sounds kind of like Jesus, but we're not sure. There was a gray marble for, we don't think Jesus said this, but we're not actually sure he didn't. And there was a black marble for, Jesus never said this. Well, just to cut the story really short, their red letter New Testament doesn't have much red. <laughs> because they basically cut out everything Jesus said that didn't fit their expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus would have said. And, and so Jesus turns out, because their presupposition was that he was not a, the second person of the Trinity. He wasn't God in human flesh. They cut Jesus down by cutting out all the the supernatural claims of Jesus. And, and when Jesus was morally judgmental in the way that a tenured professor in a liberal institution now would not be morally judgmental, they said, well, Jesus wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't get tenure in our school. And, uh, 
they, they, so they would vote on these things. They would say, this simply can't work. And, and, and they, they, they did this. This is what's amazing, evidently with straight faces. They held press conferences. I mean, after all, they were voting with marbles. And you look at it and say, okay, that falls apart. They lost their marbles. We understand that. That that, that has no credibility whatsoever. And you look at that and you say, boy, those people in those liberal divinity schools are nuts. But effectively, do you preach and teach as if every word of the scripture is breathed by God and profitable, needful for the church, a hermeneutic that is committed to the total truthfulness and trustworthiness of Scripture, to the inerrancy of Scripture, will affirm unreservedly that we are limited to the canon and we need all of the canon. Sixth, an adequate hermeneutic would affirm that the forms of biblical literature are themselves essential to the text as the divine author intended. This is really important. We're given poetry. Read the Psalms, but not just in the Psalms. We are given wisdom literature, of which the Psalms are a part. We're, we're given proverbial information through the book of Proverbs, uh, advice divinely inspired from a father to a son. We are, we, we, we are given historical accounts that are clearly, undeniably intended to be understood as Historical. We are given direct discourse as we have the very words of Jesus that, are, that are, are quoted and we are to understand Jesus said these very words. We're given parables by Jesus himself and these are included within Scripture. And even his disciples understood this is a different form of literature. When in, for instance, Matthew chapter 13, they said, why do you speak to them in parables? Why this form of literature? And Jesus said, because it's essential. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. But if we affirm the total trustworthiness and truthfulness of Scripture, then we're going to affirm that all the forms of biblical literature are essential to the text as we are to understand them. We're not to preach poetry as if it's a parable. We're not to, we're not to teach and preach the parable as if it's, it's poetry. But most importantly, we're not to teach anything as other than how it's given to us. And we are to receive everything that is given to us and not only believe it, not only receive it in that hermeneutic of submission, but also to teach it and to preach it exactly as it is given us. Seventh, an adequate hermeneutic would understand that no external authority can correct the Scripture in any respect. And there are those who think we are nuts for believing this. And I've been told recently I'm nuts for believing this. I think I'm in the fellow the company of fellow nuts. I hope and pray I am. This is where you have those who claim, look, uh, we we have uh, the Old Testament, we have the historical record of the Old Testament, but it just isn't verified by modern archaeological discoveries. We one of the projects we were given, one of the assignments in the, this recent book on, iner- on inerrancy, given five different views of inerrancy, and Dr. MacArthur got it exactly right. There, are, there aren't different views of inerrancy, basically. Uh, they, you either affirm inerrancy or you do not. And uh, as you look to that book, you come to understand that as the editors of the book understood, it, it comes down largely to how you answer questions such as, 
can our understanding of Scripture be corrected by the claims of modern archaeology? And, and my answer to that was no, and it scandalized at least some of the other authors, not all, but at least some of the other authors in this project who wrote back with absolute astonishment that I would say that nothing can correct the Bible in any respect. But the reason I believe that is because nothing can correct the Bible in any respect. <laughs> There is no form of knowledge. There's, there's no human discipline of study. There, there is no archaeologist or biologist or criminologist or you name the ologist who's going to show up with something that requires us to correct the scriptures. Now that's really, really important because here we are being hit by a double front right now. One of them on the doctrine of creation where you've got people telling us virtually 24-7... That it is implausible to believe in the historical account of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 given the assured results of modern science. Well, I'm thankful for much of modern science, let me tell you. I especially am thankful for it when I'm at 38,000 feet flying to the Shepherds Conference. I... There are goods of modern science I appreciate. There's been much, much wisdom and knowledge that's come by modern science. But you know what? There are no assured results of modern science. I'm assured only of one thing, and that is the one true and living God who is, as Francis Schaeffer said, the God who not only is, but the God who speaks. Of that I am assured. Amen. I said it's two fronts. That's one of the fronts. It comes to us virtually every day. As I say, it just, it's unrelenting. It's, and by the way, the amazing thing is people think this is new. Now people come up to me and say, you know, we're now facing a crisis. We're going to lose all intellectual credibility if we don't just get with the program here. And that, I'm thinking that's exactly what they said back in the 19th century. And, you know, one of the things that puts us in a different position in the 19th century, by the way, is that there were people who affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture back in the 19th century, like some of the Princetonians, who, had, who were operating on the belief that eventually naturalistic science, as it was undertaken at the time, would self-correct back to an understanding that was harmonious with Scripture. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. But we have no excuse now in the 21st century to understand that the direct collision between the naturalistic worldview and the worldview of the Bible is unavoidable. And what is being demanded of us is not a mere reinterpretation of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's, it's, it's not merely a, 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 a re consideration of how we are to articulate the doctrine of creation, what's being demanded of us is abject theological surrender. The, the second front is the front of sexuality, where something is, is, is now coming also. You have the argument coming from Matthew Vines and others. And, and by the way, he, he's, he's not a scholar himself. He will tell you that. He's basically drawing from much of the liberal scholarship that's now very much found in certain institutions, especially seminaries, divinity schools, universities, in, in which he makes the argument that the Apostle Paul was doing basically the very best he could in dealing with homosexuality, but he only knew what he knew. And he did not have the understanding of sexual orientation that we have now. And, and so the direct suggestion, the argument, the, the demand being made by those who press this form of biblical interpretation is that we have to abandon the Apostle Paul because, after all, the Apostle Paul was only a first century man operating on the basis of all he could know as a first century man. Well, let me be very honest with you. If the ultimate author of Romans is Paul, that's a plausible argument. But if the ultimate author of Romans is the Holy Spirit, that is not a plausible argument.
No external authority can correct the Scripture in any respect. I I love to quote Luther on this because Luther put it together in the most wonderful little Latin formulation. He said of Scripture, it is norma normans non normata. I know it's late. (laughs) That's a little Latin you need to meditate on as you go to sleep tonight. Scripture is norma normans non normata. It is the norm of norms that can't be normed. You got to love that. Luther knew how to hurl stuff at you. Because he was arguing about the very same thing. Nothing can norm Scripture. The Pope can't norm Scripture. The Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church can't norm Scripture. No one can norm Scripture because Scripture is the norm of norms that can't be normed. Amen. We need to affirm this very same thing. We understand that Rudolf Bultmann in the early 20th century said, Look, let's be honest. People who use electric razors don't believe in heaven and hell. Well, there are those in what is at least claimed to be evangelicalism today who would basically say much the same thing. We, they, they might not use the same example. Their metaphor might be changed, but their point would be very much the same. The same kind of arguments being made by Peter Enns and others, and, and, and now quite straightforwardly when they, they simply tell us that, that the Scripture is no longer, it's not, it's not tenable, it's not intellectually possible now to consider the Scripture without understanding that when it comes to matters like uh, historical investigation, come from archaeology, and in many other ways, it's simply going to have to be normed. And that's where we've got to stand, where the faithful have always stood. And I'm going to stand with Luther. Norma, normans, non normata. No matter who brings the argument about how Scripture has to be normed. Eighth, scriptural claims concerning, the his, concerning history in the space-time continuum are to be believed, taught, preached, interpreted, and defended as historical in the space-time continuum. Now, you stayed up late tonight to hear about the space-time continuum. And you wonder, why am I arguing that? That's language that comes from Francis Schaeffer who reminded us in the midst of the last quarter of the 20th century that it's no longer necessary merely to affirm truth. We have to say we're talking about true truth. And then he also pointed out, he said, there are people who are denying the historicity of the Bible in particular. He he spoke of those who deny the historicity of Genesis and especially of Adam and the fall and all that is revealed within the opening chapters of the Bible. And he said, there are those who want to act like it's a history other than history in the space-time continuum. And so that's just a language that says we're talking about real history. And, and, And just to use two words that would summarize that, write these down, it happened. What the Bible says happened happened. And what the Bible says happened, happened just as the Bible says it happened. And it happened in the same way other things happened that we know happened. (laughs) There's no secret historical code language in scripture. And yet you have people, again, there are some writing published by evangelical publishers and, and, and teaching within those institutions be considered evangelical who say that many texts of the scripture are, and this is, this is the word they use, history-like. That's sort of like truth-like. And sort of like not-like. There is no such thing as history-like. The Bible doesn't say, once upon a time. It says, in the beginning, God. 
we come to understand that when Scripture makes historical claims, every single text that makes historical claims makes historical claims the same way you and I expect any historical claim to be made. It is to be received on just that basis and not denied in any respect in terms of the fact it happened in space and in time, the space-time continuum. That's really important as you well understand because our salvation depends upon things that happen in the space-time continuum. As the Apostle Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Jesus Christ was not bodily raised from the dead in the space-time continuum, then we are of all people most to be pitied because we are still dead in our sins and trespasses. Nine. Holy Scripture is to be read as a story that contains stories. It is not just a book of stories, it is a story. It has a meta-narrative, and that's why we, we also affirm as inerrantists the necessity of a biblical theology, not just of biblical interpretation, not just of the preaching and teaching of a text or text, but of the entire text of Scripture as a whole. That's why we not only affirm an historical grammatical interpretation, we also affirm a redemptive historical interpretation of Scripture, rightly understood totally accountable to the text that tells the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation and is unabashedly Christological in the reading of the Bible, all the Bible. Ten, our confidence in the Bible is unbroken. All that it claims is true and all that it promises will come to be. In every way the Scripture can claim something to be true, we are to affirm it to be true. And, and we are to understand that the Bible is unbroken in every respect. It, it's not only unbroken in terms of its facts referring to the past, in terms of historicity, it's also absolutely true and unbroken as it makes promises about the future. We are as confident that those promises will be fulfilled as we are confident that all that the Scripture records is absolutely true. This also means that when we understand the text of Scripture, affirming the verbal plenary understanding of inspiration, we also understand that there is a great danger in asking the question that the late Harvard Divinity School Dean Christopher Stendhal used to say, every preacher has to ask about every text, what it meant and what it means. Now, there's a sense in which that's right. You understand in terms of the application of the text, that what it means may differ in emphasis, but in terms of the truth claim made by the text, all the truth claims made by the text, here's how you ought to understand it. What it meant is what it means. We're the stewards of a hermeneutical calling. We're not to preach hermeneutics, we're to preach the word in season and out of season. We're to seek the plain meaning of the text and affirm all that the text affirms. Eleven. Our understanding of Scripture is dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Not just as the one who inspired the Word, but as the one who makes possible our understanding of the Word. And, and the, the one who makes possible our preaching of the Word. And the one who makes certain that even as the Holy Spirit makes the interpretation of the Bible possible, He also makes the interpretation of the Bible assured by promising the perpiscuity of Scripture, as the old divines used to call it, the clarity of Scripture. It is meant to be understood, not to be misunderstood. It is meant to be received and obeyed. 
Few in the history of the church have affirmed this so clearly as did John Calvin when he spoke of preaching. And he spoke of the process whereby the preacher, in terms of rightly preaching the Word of God, actually makes possible the voice of God being heard by the preaching of the Word. Our understanding, even as we pray for the Holy Spirit's ministry through the Word, through our preaching, we understand that it is the means whereby believers in Christ are conformed to the image of Christ. Which leads to 12, our study and interpretation of the Bible, even our preaching of the Bible, is not an end unto itself. When Paul wrote to Timothy concerning the perfection of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16... He goes on to charge Timothy to preach the word. But you also remember that as he spoke of the perfection of Scripture, he says it's profitable. Every word of Scripture is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The verbs with which he commanded Timothy, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and teaching, much teaching. That gets to this point. The end of our hermeneutic is not hermeneutics. The end of our hermeneutic, we pray, will be the knowledge of the one true and living God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, the gospel whereby we are saved, and the full witness of Scripture by which we are conformed to the image of Christ. It is very important to understand the necessity of preaching in all of this. The text does not preach itself. You recall Ezra and his fellow scribes who read the Word and explained its meaning. In other words, that was their hermeneutical task, was to not only read the text, but to explain its meaning. But the the hermeneutic led to a homiletic. And the preaching of the Word meant that God's Word was heard. You think of the hermeneutical challenge. Think of of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, where he he comes up upon this Ethiopian official, and he he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he was reading, let's be reminded, Isaiah chapter 53. And this official said to Philip, how shall I understand, how can I understand without a guide? You are that guide. And being that guide, being that preacher, being that declarer, being that proclaimer, being that preacher of the word means that you bear an unavoidable hermeneutical responsibility. And that responsibility is to be faithful. There are millions of Americans who know they've got a lot invested in terms of what those Supreme Court justices do in their chambers. Even though most of them, I can assure you, don't know the word, they're aware of the fact they're deeply invested in that hermeneutical challenge of interpreting the United States Constitution. And most of them, if they're aware of the kind of debates and arguments going on, they know that the ultimate argument is between those who say there's a living constitution. On the one hand, we can find penumbras and emendations. We don't, we're not bound to the text. We're not bound to the sentences. We're not bound to the word. And those who say, yes, we're bound to the word and we're bound to the word as the word's given to us. And we're bound by the word as it was originally intended. And most Americans, at least aware of the debate, understand that those are the terms and they... No, how much is at stake? How much more is at stake when you're in your chambers? When you're in your study, your library, when before you, you open a book that's not 2,000, it's not 200 years old, written by those we call the founding fathers, but is 
2,000 years old and more given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just imagine how much more is at stake in terms of the hermeneutical challenge and the hermeneutical responsibility. Imagine how much is at stake when you stand behind the pulpit and open your mouth to speak. And even though many of your people would never be able to articulate it this way, what comes out of your mouth is dependent upon the faithfulness of the hermeneutic you bring to your homiletic, which you bring to the pulpit. I end with Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 28. I'll simply read it for you. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. So may it be. Let's pray. Now, Father, we come before you praying that you will make of this band of preachers a band of faithful interpreters of your word, not because of our brilliance and our insight and intelligence, but because of your faithfulness to the word you have inspired and to the church you have bought with such a price, even the price of the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that there would rise up in this generation a band of preachers unafraid to declare in season and out of season all that you have revealed all of your word. And Father, may we say, thus it is written, thus saith the Lord, it happened. May the prophet with a dream tell the dream, but may the one who has my word Speak my word faithfully, saith the Lord. Father, we pray to be found faithful, and we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.